Welcome to episode 245 of Live Happy Now. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, thanking you for joining us again this week. For most of us, joy is not the first word that jumps to mind when we think about work. But today's guest has made it his mission to find out how we can all change that. Alex Liu is the managing partner and chairman of the global management consulting company, Carney, as well as being a huge proponent of finding joy in the workplace. He hosts the Joy at Work podcast and recently spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos on topics including bridging the joy gap and how to lead a mentally healthy organization. I sat down with Alex to find out what each of us can do to create more joy in our own workplace. Alex, welcome to Live Happy Now. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We wanted to get you on the show because you talk about joy at work, which is something, well, okay, a lot of us think those two words are mutually exclusive. So when someone says it's possible, we really want to talk to them and find out how. But first, I wanted to find out when you started discovering that there actually is a connection between joy and work. Well, I mean, I've been a management consultant my whole life for like 30 years, and a lot of what we're trying to do is help people and companies and clients reach their full potential. So there's certainly a a professional angle to this. From a personal angle, I guess we all come from different backgrounds. You have role models from your family, what gives you self-confidence, what gives you joy and energy and positivity throughout the day. So I think it's a combination of genetics. My father in particular was one of those folks that just saw the opportunity in every challenge versus the other way around. And then sort of, I guess my calling has been that of a coach or an educator like my father also to try to bring that out in other people because you get the reinforcing positivity of doing what you like. And then if it's infectious and people see that, then they kind of bring it back to you. And it's a cycle of positivity versus any other type. I don't agree with the formulation, of course, that that other folks have said about, you know, joy and work being non-exclusive. I mean, we spend so much time driving to work. I interviewed a a fellow today at London Business School. He was saying, you know, work should not be the commute to the weekend. (laughs) It should be (laughs) intrinsically valuable in itself. Yeah, exactly. He's a great, joyful and a great champion of this topic as well and looked at the neuroscience of it. I mean, it's human. It's human to be naturally inquisitive and learning and finding great things about whatever's in front of you in the day, eight-hour day, 40-hour work week, 24-7, what have you. But for most of us, and I think, yeah, I think I can say most of us just based on what we get from feedback and what I've read, it doesn't feel joyful. It feels like a grind. And even though we start out excited about it, it becomes like a daily grind. So I guess to start, what does it even look like? to be joyful at work. Yeah, I mean, first, I want to agree with you. We did some research ourselves. We did global research. We looked at millennials, Generation X, baby boomers, mostly people from companies of a larger size, over a billion. And regardless of country, regardless of demographic, people do feel this, what I call joy gap. 90% of the folks want and expect to have some sort of great experience at work, but only less than 40% do. That's across regions of the world. That's across the demographics. So it's not like a millennial versus baby boomer problem. It's a problem that everyone has. So how do we get into this fix? I mean, I, I was so interested in it that I actually wrote a Harvard Business Review article this summer, and the editor said it was called you know, Making Joy a Workplace Priority. And there were 70,000 downloads in the first few days, and, and the editor said, I think you're onto something. <laughs> that led to my own podcast. I did season one, and it's good to be on the other side of the desk here and responding to questions, but, you know, talk to educators, Broadway producers, executives, athletes, and they say the same thing. A lot of what we do and create, it's all a man-made problem in, in many ways, gets in the way of the natural joy that we want in working with other people collaboratively at work. 
I mean, think about it. Work is a is trying to be on a championship athletic team, right? You're cheering each other on. You have a common purpose. You want to win the title or the championship or the league. You have role clarity. You have impact. You have purpose. You, everyone's doing what they can. They've got each other's back. Why can't we have that at work? And when you look at it, some of the reasons why we don't have that kind of greatness is the way we structure work. Historically, it was all sort of, okay, you do this job and don't get in anyone else's way. Right. You have these metrics and generally they're mostly financial and they're not team based or they're not peer based or they're not helping other or even clients and customers based. You have all these layers and silos that keep divisions and executives and executive teams and geographies apart. Right. Sort of the focus on business units or this company or my company versus your unit. So if you look at all that, you can imagine quite easily that people that are in this sort of matrix can feel a bit disillusioned. Like, What's the point? Who am I working for? Am I working for myself if I'm not learning? Am I working for the company and someone else is getting paid for my benefit? Where's the commonality? Where's the purpose? And I boiled it down in the very simple research to three, three themes. People want, and people have different words for, for this same phenomenon, but it's people want acknowledgement, they want harmony, and they want impact. So that has to do with sort of being seen and being safe, but also being supported. That means role clarity, that means common purpose, what is our objective. That means inclusion, which is a little bit is diversity and inclusion and workplace justice, but also feeling that whatever you contribute is adding up to something much bigger than what your particular job description is, right? I think there's a lot of upside, but there is a lot in the way, and that the joy gap that you allude to, Paula, is, is clearly out there. Well, what can we do about it? Because I found that research... <laughs> Really fascinating to see how big that gap was. And especially, you know, millennials and the generation after that are the people who are growing up and entering the workforce now have a greater expectation about fulfillment. Whereas my parents' generation, we didn't talk about fulfillment. They were like, I just got to go to work and pay some bills and keep these kids fed. And so the mindset of what we expect from work has changed. And how do we now meet that? mindset? How do we meet that expectation? Right. I mean, the nature of work is changing it with technology. It's kind of ironic that with all the connected devices that people actually feel more isolated and lonely than in the days of my father and myself in the early days of my career. Paul, I guess I would say a couple of things. First is I think there's an inside out angle on this, sort of what you do as a person in terms of your mindset and attitude. And then I think there are solutions that emanate from the executives and the folks that are responsible for trying to build a culture dedicated to joy. So on the inside out piece, I think it, this gets back to just human biology and psychology. I suppose, that people need to have a mindset and attitude of being self-defined in their happiness. You have to do what you love and love what you do. It doesn't really matter what the person next door or what your brother or sister has done or even your father or mother. You know, the idea is to run your own race and run it very enthusiastically and happily. You define success. You're not a victim. You have ownership over your own career. That means for some people and many people, supposedly continuous learning. Right, being finding out what the adventure is that will expand your horizons, expand your potential, and then also finding a community or a company that actually supports that. And that could be an athletic team, or it could be a club, it could be the company that you work in. And so, if you want to be a part of a winning team and and look for commonality, that will probably go a long way to giving you the those ingredients of of knowledge, amount, harmony, and impact. That's the inside out piece. 
the interesting thing, and each company is different, each company is different, even states within the United States are different, right? How do you build a culture that's dedicated to aligning that, and what would that look like? I mean, in my own world, I have a company of almost 4,000 folks. Again, they're 70% millennials, 25% Generation X, and then 5% baby boomers who are basically the folks that have created all the problems <laughs> in the workplace <laughs> and in the world. So believe me, the millennials and the Gen Xs and the Gen Zs now that we're hiring will point that out to us quite articulately. But <laughs> Frequently. <laughs> exactly right. You know, it started with the kids. But there is a bit of live by example, right? The role models of the executives have to be, are you inclusive? Are you open? Are you responsive? Are you transparent? Are you trying to be a part of the solution? For example, de-layering the company, right? Having metrics that are much less financially oriented and more common objectives like client impact or customer loyalty, things like that. In my firm, diversity and inclusion is very important because these are young folks. They are from all over the world. We are agile. We have 3,000 projects a year. They're working on very different situations, different by week and different by client and geography. And the demographics require us to have the best people who know the subject matter and know the country and know the company to do that. We have what is called the dial agenda, diversity, inclusion, apprenticeship, and leadership, which is very important for a professional services firm. It's a person-to-person business. It's an experienced brand. And we call it dialing it up. I mean, it's a little bit corny, but corny works. People remember that. And that's a part of our our weekly and daily regime when we get together. We talk about, are we dialing it up on those key attributes? Also by a culture of core values. So we sing it from the mountaintops. We have five core values, generosity and solidarity. That's two of them. And they are the foundations of what we call teamwork. If you're generous with people and you're working together as one. The other three are related more towards individual excellence. We call it passion, boldness, and curiosity. So you add those five up, you got a pretty vibrant culture and it lends itself more to a joyful workplace. And then finally, Paula, we added up by saying, what is our purpose? You know, our purpose for our clients is to help them break through, not just succeed, right? To do something great. Our purpose is to help our teams not just survive in the workplace, but to thrive, reach their full potential, be fully acknowledged, be their best self. And for communities, that's the third audience, in addition to clients and teams, is making change happen versus just standing for everything, right? And writing articles and op-eds, you know, is it contributing pro bono for social impact? Is it taking a stand and actually contributing resources to help refugees in Middle East and female issues in Africa? All things that we have stood for and actually funded. So in addition to lead by example, those are some cultural levers that I've tried to pull in addition to being, you know, an external ambassador on this, in addition to sort of the business school articles and leading a couple of panels at Davos, which is happening at the end of January next week. So those are some key elements, I suppose, Paula. There's probably more and they're going to differ by country and by company and by sector. And what happens for the individual who's not a leader? They're not in that position to make the change. We hear about how the culture starts at the top and that's true, but sometimes... You might be doing something you love, but you don't love where you're doing it. And, you know, the potential is there, but it's not a joyful workplace. So what can people who aren't in leadership positions do to start changing that and making changes from the bottom up? Yeah, well, I think we're all on the same team. And I think if you're an individual, regardless of what level and what country, you know, you should take ownership for not only your own career. What is it you want to do? What is it you want to learn? Who do you want to work with? Are you going to provide feedback to this mentor who's not delivering or delivering exceptionally? Are you going to be working on clients facing things versus things that are more helping the company be more successful? So you have to first 
don't be a victim, I said at the beginning. The individual has to sort of take ownership over their career and be proactive. Right? Don't wait for the world to help you be happy. You have to find a, your source of happiness. The second is to provide open feedback, too, because I think the leaders, quote-unquote the leaders, and everyone's trying to help each other as teammates anyway, so there could be some false distinction there, should be open-minded to your feedback. And I think just the value and impact of contributing and having your input seen, recognized, and even implemented probably helps in the day-to-day grind. Not every day is going to be perfect, but you got to learn from each day and try to make the place better. I think that's kind of the mindset of continuous improvement that an individual at whatever level, whether it's entry level, mid-level, stuck in that giant matrix I complained about, or at the top level where no one's talking to you and trying to give you only good news. I mean, that's that all needs to change at all levels. And what are some great ways to start implementing those changes? How do you start building a culture that is dedicated to joy? Well, listen, I think it has to do with, it does come from the top in communications and an authentic belief that there is a broader definition of success than just coming to work and making the numbers. As I tried to use in my example, I mean, there's purpose regarding why does your company exist? What is the broader purpose? And that needs to be communicated and understood at the entry level, at the trading level. So I, I think executives who are trying to build cultures need to probably modify their metrics and focus less on just the financials. One of the things that we are all seeing in the broader business community is a pivot, a pivot from focusing only on shareholders to what we call stakeholders, and therefore a shift from performance to purpose. So it's not just important to make your numbers on a quarterly shareholder basis, but how are we treating suppliers fairly? Are we trading our workplace and staff in a fair way? Is it a just workplace with the right amount of diversity and attention to individuals of all types? Are we being climate sensitive? All this actually is self fulfilling because it helps in the war for talent, which is, you know, there's a a shortage of really great capabilities out there. And if you are providing this broader solution to and broader definition of success, have a better chance of winning customers and talent. So I think a lot of the levers of improving the culture, re-emphasizing the values and the purpose, implementing diversity and inclusion type of items to make people feel seen and belonged. I think those help an awful lot. The final ingredient is, I would say, passion, the passion of the leaders to actually believe in this pivot, believe that listening to the employees with a regular engagement survey, for example, we do it twice a year now. We used to do it once every two years. Very short survey, just finding out, do you feel included? Do you actually feel happy? Do you feel like you're part of successful teams? Do you think you know what the strategy of the company is? Those are some things that can help with the culture because then you, if you understand what the culture is and what is wrong with it, then you can actually build a better culture. The other piece that I found very helpful is to consistently and enthusiastically ask for feedback. We have something called the net followership score now. So we ask all individuals, again, this is an entry-level person or a mid-level person or a senior executive in our firm. We have very quick ratings that are done anonymously but that provide immediate scores on whether or not they're being a good leader, a follower, or people following you. Do they feel that you're being living the values? And that applies also to our clients, our customers. And every assignment we call a client, we have a client sentiment tool. So not just the people that are paying the bill and, and we're sending the invoice to or the top level of the company, but we're asking all the people that we're interacting with, people that we're getting data from, that we're working through the management team on the change process or whatever. And we again, anonymously get feedback and the team leaders are saying, wow, the client felt really great last week because of the way we engaged them. So there are things that are very practical that I found in my own company and I'm sure apply to others to show that you are interested in culture because culture beats strategy every day of the week. 
and some people talk about culture, eat strategy for breakfast. Everyone's heard that quote. I really believe it. I mean, I'm in a people business, but it is so important. The reason why things are so screwed up is because we have the wrong culture to implement it most of the time. And just the fact that you're asking those questions of employees and of clients, that creates a certain mindset shift, doesn't it? Where we feel like I'm going to be heard. And if I'm frustrated, I know that I have a place to go with that. The first time we did our global engagement survey, first, you know, we had a baseline of where we were on these key questions, right? There were 20 questions that we wanted to mark progress against. We also had a little box there for verbatims, you know, like you know, write in anything that you want to fix or anything else to elaborate your color commentary, so to speak. So we got about, we sent it out to 3,500 3, employees and we got about a thousand verbatims. Then six months later, we did the same thing and happily the engagement scores went up on those dimensions. And we also, then we got 4,000 verbatims. Wow. What I concluded from that was that people thought that if I wrote something in, I can see it actually being listened to, read to eventually, and maybe parts of it being implemented. So people said, well, I'm starting to take the time to write it because I now people are listening. Just as you said, Paula, people want to be seen and they also want to be heard. And if they're seen and heard, then they will feel supported and then they will feel courageous to ask the tough questions, to push their own curiosity, to help the company take new ground and also help the colleagues, if you have a net followership thing in there as well, help them be better colleagues. So it all becomes, you're you're going downhill at some point and not pushing against the culture, right? You're creating a new great one from within. Yeah. And that can make all the difference between someone who's frustrated, just complaining about it or them saying, you know what, here's like, I'm actually going to come up with a solution and I'm going to approach my manager about how we could do this because now they feel empowered. Exactly. I mean, we try to tell this in my business to our clients, you know, you need to be the difference. It's one thing to have a, a great strategy or a nice presentation, but if you aren't being the bold yourself, if you aren't being the difference, you aren't actually making it happen and believing it will happen and it ain't going to happen. But you're right. It's taking ownership over and being a part of the solution, not just being a great criticizer. I mean, the rise of anonymous vehicles, social media, blogs is really, you know, created all these folks who are so negative because it's very easy anonymously to be negative and just sort of say, here's a problem. Here's another way of looking at the problem. Oh, let's admire the problem. It's quite another (laughs) discipline and it's much more positive to be the other side of the fence. Come join us. Help us fix the world, right? Help us fix the company, fix the culture. And do you see that when people start thinking that way at work, it transcends into other areas of their lives? Well, I'm hoping it does, and we haven't done that kind of survey, but you intuitively, the problem is that people may be happy and they feel that they can only get happiness outside of work, and right, that work is this burden. I'm just there to make money. And for many people, unfortunately, it is true that it is it's a survival mechanism, but just like Maslow's hierarchy, right, once you get past your survival that you really want to get the maximum out of it, when you get the maximum out of it, I tell you, when I have a great day at work, it does bleed into the rest of my, my day, and I, it becomes less of a boundary, right? It's all integrated. It's work-life integration, not work-life separation. It's joy, work, balance, and integration, not separation. So hopefully, if you're happy at work, obviously, you'll see that the reverse happens, which you you have a bad day at work. You come back (laughs) and you kick the dog, and that's not nice. Or you may do even worse. And I think, so think positively. It's really the the other side of the fence. And I think, I'm hoping you're right, Paula. And I think you're right, that it will help on both sides. And of course, if you're happy at home, it obviously helps the your work-life uh, work behavior and demeanor, too. Yeah. Well, that's terrific because I think we all spend so much time at work. You need to make yes. it happy. You might as well make it joyful because you got to be there anyway. So make the most of it. So, Alex, when I come back, I'm going to tell 
our listeners how they can learn more about you, where they can read some of the things you've written and listen to your podcast. But thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us. Again, this is a big topic. We should probably revisit it again because there's a lot to talk about. Absolutely. Now, thanks for having me and good luck. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Alex. That was Alex Liu talking to us about finding joy at work. If you'd like to learn how you can follow Alex on social media, listen to his podcast, or read his Harvard Business Review article on making joy a priority at work, visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. And while you're on our website, we have a special deal this week for Live Happy Now listeners. If you haven't been to our online Live Happy store recently, you've been missing out. This week, we're having a huge sale on all our Happy Acts apparel so you can get all the gear you need to wear when you're celebrating the International Day of Happiness with us on March 20th. Beginning today and going through February 1st, you can get 50% off all the Happy Acts apparel. Just visit the store at livehappy.com and start shopping. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.